Hello, and welcome back to Old Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. I've talked about the great Greek philosopher Aristotle before, but you know, one of the things, and I may have mentioned this, that Aristotle brought to physics was the idea of causation. When we think of causation, we think of the white cue ball goes into the stack of balls there at the end of the table and the force throws them all around. And that is kind of a, of a causation. It fits into Aristotle's notion of causation. But if you remember that Aristotle has four different understandings of causation. It's really a little different than how we think of things as 21st century Americans. But the four causes are the material, the instrumental, the formal, and the final. The material is just what something's made of. The instrumental is, you know, what carved it out, what made it. The form is the idea behind it, like the Pieta is a, is a mom holding her dead son. That's the form, or a form of a chair if a carpenter is making a chair. But the last sense of causation is final causation. What's it all for? So why did Michelangelo sculpt a piece of marble, the material, using a hammer and a chisel, the instrumental, with the form of inside of his head of this woman holding her dead son? What's the point of it all? If you're going to make a hammer, the point is to hammer a nail. That's why Aristotle saw purpose and meaning in material reality and the forces and causes that work in material reality. And so for Michelangelo and the Pieta, the final cause is to try and bring somebody to the experience of beauty and from the experience of beauty to say that there's a goodness in Christ and if there's goodness in Christ, there's something true in Christ. So listen to the gospel. Beauty in the church evangelizes, but modern science reduces causations to materiality, say the quantum field or biology and, and, uh, and every, all the different kinds of forces biology deals with, instrumental, well, in, uh, evolution's instrumental. But for modern science, there's really no form in mind. It's just all random. And there's no final purpose to it all. And that's why a materialistic, scientistic uh, mindset um, simply doesn't deal with those two last causes, uh, form and then uh, the final form, uh, the, final, the final cause, what's, what's it made for. So when Aristotle thought about God, I think this was interesting. We think about God as creator because we're Christians. But what if you're not a Christian and you'd still believe there's some purpose to your life? So Aristotle's argument for the existence of God was an argument based on final cause, that the God that is somehow responsible for creation. And to be fair, uh, Aristotle did not believe in creation. He thought the world was eternal. And Creation and the eternal nature of the world have battled their way out over the, the centuries to our present time, where it appears that the world probably isn't eternal. It had a start that we call the Big Bang. But for Aristotle, who thought that the world was eternal, he still thought there was this divine being 
that worked by attraction, lifting the world up, bringing it to some final purpose, some final cause. And so here's what he meant by a God that works by attraction. What he argued was, and kind of paraphrasing it, it's in his uh, book, The Physics, is that if you were to walk in front of a bakery and you looked in there and you saw this beautiful Boston cream pie, wonderful whipped cream, chocolate, great, great uh, crust, and you had a buddy, a girlfriend, who walked up behind you, shoved you into the bakery and made you eat, forced you to eat that pie, well, that's kind of a causation, isn't it? It's instrumental. But he says, that's not really how that Boston cream pie works on us. Something good works on us by attraction. It makes us want it. It speaks to an appetite inside of us, according to Aristotle, that looks for the experience to be completed in eating that Boston cream pie. And so the God that works not by compelling us, or pushing us around, or bullying us, the God who doesn't threaten us into heaven. But how about a God that is just so beautiful and speaks to you in the deepest recesses of your soul that makes you want beauty, goodness, and truth? Because attraction works that way, beauty, truth, and goodness. Think about it like this, because we're listening to all this nonsense out of uh, Russia right now about the poor Ukrainians being part of Mother Russia. Totalitarian governments, liars and bullies, can manipulate goodness. They can make you not believe in it. They can make you be cynical about anything that's good in your life. So goodness can be undermined by evil in the world. The truth, people can lie, people can manufacture truths. This is part of our social media dilemma. But beauty, you can come up with counterfeits of beauty, pornography. But the real beauty that speaks to the human heart is like the beauty of your little daughter who encounters something wonderful in life. Maybe it's a butterfly. Maybe she heard about Jesus. Maybe she's learned the love of God or she's learned the love of friendship. And you see that light come on in them. That is the kind of beauty that is so attractive to people. That kind of beauty is something other than just the material attractiveness of the child or she's punching your buttons or whatever. That kind of beauty doesn't lend itself to being corrupted. Oh, you can twist beauty around in pornography and make it merely a, an appetite but it never has the same beauty in your mind as that experience of that little child or the kindness that someone shows you. You see a beauty that transcends reality. And so think of it like this. Beauty's the wild card. Truth and goodness maybe can be concealed from us, but beauty, beauty has a way of breaking through. So this is the argument about transcendentals, beauty, truth, and goodness. And the attractive nature of beauty as how God attracts us into the deeper realities of who God is. So 
conscience. Conscience, according to St. John Henry Newman, is God's primordial voice in each of us. It's not actually his voice, according to Newman, but the echo of his voice. It's something we understand, and it speaks to us on a very deep, deep level. Conscience is always oriented to God, always will be attracted by what's beautiful, good, and true. Sin, on the other hand, things that just appear to our lower, baser uh, natures, is always about ourself. Nobody thinks you're coming closer to God uh, because you have a wonderful cheeseburger. At the same time, you may give thanks to God because you're a faithful person for the cheeseburger. But it's not the same thing as seeing the beauty of Mother Teresa of Calcutta working with the dying and the poor. So Newman said that God speaks to us from behind a veil. Nature's always been seen as a veil that, that uh, somehow conceals and reveals. This is the basis of the sacraments, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist, that God uses the veil of nature to reach with beauty into our lives. It's why for especially Catholic parents, that first communion with that little girl dressed up in that beautiful bridal dress, little boys all look like they're lawyers on the way to the courthouse to sue somebody, uh, but they're wonderful family moments. Confirmation somehow doesn't have the same attraction for people. It's too bad because that's the, uh, the important completion of the sacraments of initiation in, in, uh, in our church. But conscience responds to truth and goodness because once you see something's beautiful, your heart is open to something that's good for that child and that's true about that child. So Newman said that with the voice of God, it's a message from him, both in nature, how we're built, and the grace of the gospel that speaks to us from behind the veil and teaches us and rules us by his representatives. That's why the magisterium of the church, talking about uh, moral understandings, moral theology, it's about reason and truth and goodness. And some of the most controversial things that the church gets involved in is always fighting these lower appetites in human beings, drawing us to something higher, truer, and good of the life of a child in the in the womb, the sanctity of the marital act between man and woman that can be debased in mere adultery or fornication. So it's been reaffirmed by the popes and dignitatis humanum uh, that the ancient teaching of the church is that the human conscience can be formed and informed, because conscience means literally to act with understanding, but the conscience can never be compelled compulsion is foreign to conscience. And so an act of conscience always must be voluntary and free. So with the church, think of that first reading from 1 Corinthians. It says that in the desert, all of our fathers were under the cloud and they passed through the Red Sea and they all were baptized into Moses in both the cloud and the sea. Remember, they were led by this pillar of cloud. They passed through the Red Sea. So St. Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians, that's the second reading from this Sunday, that that's what, how they were baptized. That's a forerunner of baptism. And we still refer to it in baptismal ceremony in the church because of St. Paul. And then he says, and they all ate the same supernatural food. That would be the manna. They all 
drank the same supernatural drink. That's in Exodus 17 where Moses strikes the rock and water comes out because the people had run out of water. So there's this supernatural food, this supernatural drink uh, in their lives, St. Paul argues. But they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So the same Christ that gives us the sacraments in the church is the Christ that was operating in the desert. And then here's what St. Paul says. He said, but God was not pleased with them because they turned to immorality, um, Numbers 25, kind of a, a sexual immorality. They became idol worshipers, Exodus 32. Remember, they built the golden calf. Then seraph serpents were sent to, to bite them. And remember, Moses had to lift up the staff with a fiery bronze serpent on it. And then they became grumblers, uh, griping about everything. The quail was no good. The manna was no good. Um, because all of these things are limited but they're to draw us to a deeper truth. And so they died in the desert. They all died in the desert. They all committed the sin of presumption. Therefore, St. Paul concludes, let anyone who thinks that he stands before God take heed lest he fall, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The idea is that you got it made. You were baptized, you got your Eucharist, you got confirmation, you got it made. That's, St. Paul says, that's what the people in the desert thought. Listen to God's conscience. Follow it in a moral life. Because here's what Jesus said in Matthew 16. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The conscience speaks to our soul. It's what makes us a human being. So now let's turn to what Jesus had to say in the gospel. So remember what Aristotle said, God attracts us, uh, God brings us to himself. He is the final cause. To share in the life of God is how Thomas Aquinas would say, to participate in God. That is right in the Gospels. But sin attracts too. And so we can, we can bind ourselves to immorality. We can bind ourselves just to our appetites. Whereas St. Paul said last last week, just fill our stomachs. It doesn't go anywhere. Sin is an offense against reason, truth, and right conscience. It's a failure in genuine love for God and neighbor caused by a perverse attachment to certain goods. It wounds the nature of us and it injures human solidarity. It is an utterance, a deed, or a desire contrary to the eternal law. That's from chapter 1849 or paragraph 1849 of the Catholic uh, Catechism. So sin is, a, is somehow not being who you were made to be. Sin is at some points, if you get deeper into it, just giving up on be, being who God made you to be. It's rejecting that final attraction. So now think about how Jesus talks about sin in Luke chapter 13 where our gospel comes. He get, comes from. He gives us three examples. He says, if you remember, he said, uh, Pilate's massacre of the Galileans, where he mixed the blood of Galileans with the blood of their sacrifice. Philo of Alexandria claimed in his writings, Embassy to Gaius, 
that uh, and he was a he was a contemporary of Jesus. He said that Pontius Pilate was so cruel that the Jews put together an embassy to go to see the emperor to complain about him. And he's, and here's what Philo wrote, an English translation. Pilate feared lest they might in reality go on an embassy to the emperor and might impeach him with respect to other particulars of his government in respect of his corruption and his acts of insolence and his rapine and his habit of insulting people and his cruelty and his continual murders of people untried and uncondemned and his never-ending and gratuitous and most grievous inhumanity. Suffice it to say, Pontius Pilate was not loved. So what Jesus is talking about, so you have these violent people who do horrible things. And these people, these Galileans, were at temple worship. And Pilate sent his Roman legion in there, Roman legionaries in there, and they killed them all. That is a sinful act. We all suffer from sinful acts. The Ukrainians are suffering from it now. But Jesus says, do you think they were worse sinners than you? They deserved that more than you did? And then Jesus said, how about the collapse of the Tower of Siloam? You know, the Siloam Tower is mentioned in John 9 uh, in Jerusalem. Apparently, it got in rickety, and there were people trying to fix it, and it collapsed and killed all the workmen. Uh, Luke has these two examples. They're not attested to any place else in Scripture, but obviously they were actual historical events. So he said, all these people that this building fell on and killed, do you think somehow they're worse sinners than you, that they deserve that and you don't, that you somehow got a special deal? He says, by no means. Then he talks about, but unless you repent, you'll have the same fate. Just death, destruction, end of the story. And then Jesus says, he tells the parable of the fig tree, which is in all the Gospels. He says there's this fig tree that it's not bearing fruit. It's not being what a fig tree is made to be. So the owner's going to cut it down. But the gardener defends it and says, give me a year, let me like plow around it, water it, fertilize it, and maybe next year it'll produce fruit. Give it time to repent and produce good works. But the reality is, is that judgment is coming, and in Lent you can't get past it. So it isn't just that our sins deserve punishment, it's just when you love everything that's not God, and you really detest beauty, truth, and goodness, rationality. You detest being like Jesus. Why would heaven make you happy anyway? What I love about our Catholic teaching, we say in hell, fire is punishment. In purgatory, fire cleanses us. In heaven, fire is the passion of love for Christ united with reason and being a whole human being. In the Catholic Catechism, talking about repentance, which means change how you see things. It says that interior repentance is a radical reorientation of our whole life, a return, a conversion to God with all our heart, an end of sin, a turning away from evil with repugnance towards the evil actions we have committed. And we've all done some bad stuff. And at the same time, it entails the desire and resolution to change one's life with hope in God's mercy and trust in the help of his grace. The conversion of heart is accompanied by a 
uh, healthy pain, a solitary pain and sadness, which the fathers called the anami cruciatus, the affliction of spirit, and compunctio cordis, the repentance of heart. That's That's paragraph 1431. People who feel guilty about the past, I say that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. We live in a culture that doesn't think you should have guilt and shame over anything. Well, there is kind of a pathological nature of shame if you're just feeling bad about everything. But the reality is, is that that feeling of shame, that feeling of guilt, is your conscience. It is the voice of God. And it is a health, healthy, life-giving reminder not to go back to all the stuff that hurts you and hurts others. You know, uh, John Paul uh, said that a friend once asked him, uh, what was the most important, if the Bible was lost, what's the most important part of it or line of it that if we remembered it, we would understand what Christ came to do? And John Paul didn't hesitate. And this is so John Paul II. He said, the truth will make you free. Just understand what it really means to be a human being. You'll know how to care for your kids, your spouse, your friends, the poor, and the community you live in. Right now we have so many bad examples of being a human being. It is radical repentance and conversion of heart to want to truly follow and be like Christ. So let's pull this together in the Slap, bang, finish to this episode of Oral Valley Catholic. So you remember how we started out the podcast talking about Aristotle attracting us by beauty, truth, and goodness. Aristotle's understanding of God attracting us. And think of the story of St. Paul as he talks about Exodus and the people in the desert. He said, they were all baptized into Moses. They all ate the same supernatural food and drank the same supernatural drink. And that was Christ, God present in the world. Still, God was not pleased with them because not only did they fall into immorality, but the grumbling, they were so ungrateful. You know, the Eucharist is thanksgiving. When we come to Mass, We're bringing our whole week to God and thanking him. And that God is the God that is described in that third chapter of Exodus, which is the first reading, which is one of the great readings in the scriptures. And so this is the story about how Moses, who is kind of disconnected from the people of Israel, he kills an Egyptian who's beating up an Israelite. He has to flee his home from Pharaoh, if you remember the story. Uh, He was almost killed as a child. This guy's got some gripes, but he's found a good gig. He married a really nice woman, works for dad, taking care of his sheep, and dad, his father-in-law, is very good to him because if you look at Moses in the story of Exodus, he doesn't really know his own father. Uh, He has these strong female role people in his life, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, uh, his own mother, and his sister, Miriam. Uh, but here's a guy who's a little bit at loose ends. And so here's the story about how Moses encounters his meaning and purpose in life. 
So God said to Moses, Come no nearer, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I am the God of your fathers, he continued, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. But the Lord said, I have witnessed the affliction of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cry of complaint against their slave drivers, so I know well what they are suffering. Therefore I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and lead them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses said to God, I want to go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. If they ask me, what's his name? What am I to tell them? And God replied, I am who am. Then he added, This is what you shall tell the Israelites. I am sent me to you. God spoke further to Moses, Thus shall you say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered through all generations. That's the, the reading from Exodus. So think about that. This kind of fatherless son, looking for meaning in life, encounters this burning bush because God is in nature, but doesn't consume nature. God is in our lives, but he doesn't destroy us. He doesn't destroy his own creation. And so Moses hears this voice and recognizes that it's holy. Moses hears his voice and doesn't rebel against it, but listens. And the voice discloses two important things about the God that attracts us. The first is simply this, that his purpose is to exist. He is the God that is I am. And the second is that he's the God of relationship. Jesus used these two phrases. Do you remember when he talked about the resurrection? He said that when God appeared to Moses, he said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, all who had been dead for hundreds of years. Because to God, everyone's living. Because God's very nature is existence. It's how we find who we truly are. Because we follow our consciences as we listen within us, not just to the moral law, but also to the call of beauty, making our homes, our relationships beautiful, understanding what the truth of what it means to be a human being in relationship to God. So we look to the moral law, but fundamentally to the life of charity, and then the goodness that you can experience in a life well-lived. Uh, surrounded, please God, by children and grandchildren and friends and all of those that you have helped. So God in himself, as we would say in theology, God ad intra, is the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Holy Trinity just exists. It's what the Holy Trinity does. Creation somehow is brought into being through this God whose sole purpose, sole purpose is simple, just to exist and to love. God at extra, that is God outside of himself, is the God that calls to Moses. It's the God who calls to us in our own consciences. And so God's gone by very, by various names in the Old Testament, Elohim or Yahweh, which is Y-H-W-H, the Tetragrammaton, which is four letters that have no consonants. 
because it's not supposed to be said. And devout Jewish people won't say it. They'll say Hashem, the Holy One. Because to revere God and to love God above all things is to keep that bridge to the divine open. So what happens if you're griping and you just feel at um, wit's end and you just the whole world seems to you right now that you just need a reset? Think about Lent. We're talking about prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. But I want to ask you to think differently about sacrifice. Because what you give up in Lent, whether it's no meat on Friday or whatever pleasure you're taking a vacation from, from, appet- from Lent, which is probably a good plan the year around, these, these vacations from pleasure can actually reopen pleasure to you. But think of the reasons why you sacrifice. First, sacrifice for the right reasons, not fear of God or pride or I'm going to make myself a better, play, a better person. Make your sacrifices in Lent out of love of God and love of neighbor. Because love is the deepest motivation that you have. And to the extent you focus on your capacity for loving others and receiving the love that others have to give, there is always sacrifice involved. The God of love is revealed in the crucifixion that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, John chapter three. Sacrifice for the right reasons, love. Jesus embraced the cross, not because in and of itself it's it's a great deal, it's not. He did it because he loved us. It's why we embrace sacrifice. Second, start with sacrifices that seem insignificant and build upon these. You know, it's not about the big dramatic uh, motion it's about doing small things with great love. That's St. Therese of Lisieux. St. Teresa of Calcutta would tell you she ripped off St. Teresa of Lisieux. And St. Therese could care less. She would rather everybody ripped her off and understood that real sacrifice, even small things done daily, are done for love of God and neighbor. And then finally, regularly take time off from all your physical pleasures. Maybe enjoy a, a glass of scotch. Good for you, my friend. But not every day. Um, Maybe at some point in the year you say, I'm not going to do it this week. Maybe on Sunday, which is a feast day. That's why Sundays are never part of Lent. They're always a feast day. Feast and fast. These are the poles of the spiritual life. And if you use them out of love, if you use simple things that just say no to yourself, then take a step back and ask how you're really seeing all of these gifts that God has given us. And remember what St. Paul said, God in the desert fed the people supernatural food and supernatural drink. What really offended God? They're grumbling because they'd forgotten to count their blessings. So this Lent, let's learn from the example of our ancestors, God, pulls us to him by attraction. But like any attraction, because we're humans, we can just kill it with, um, with abuse. We need to learn self-restraint. We need to learn boundaries. We learn to remember why sacrifice is important in our life, not just during Lent, but year-round. God bless you on this third Sunday of Lent. <laughs>